Hi friends, welcome back to another episode of Colts, Killers, and Cocktails with Jen and Vanessa. Please be advised the following episode is for mature audiences only. We talk about content that may be triggering to some individuals and contain discussions regarding rape, murder, sex, suicide, religious organizations, and disturbing situations. Now, let's get into this week's episode. So today is a Saturday morning, and we actually decided to record two episodes today. What's that called? A double hitter? Double whammy? <laughs> sure. Double I, hitter. I, I don't know baseball, but or maybe it's not even baseball. But still, we're recording two episodes one day. Let's so do it. As far as life updates, um, the only life update I have is that we're drinking champagne and pomegranate juice. So it's very yummy. And I always have to give a dog update, of course, because you guys super care about my greyhound. So we got her spayed, I guess, last week. And if you guys have ever got a dog spayed before, like, you know how much they're in pain and how much they hurt. And I just felt like the worst parent or dog parent on this planet because I was like, oh, my gosh, you're in so much pain. And you did it to her. (laughs) And I did it to you. I'm so sorry. Like, she was getting into my Jeep and she was laying down and she started whining. And I was like, oh, no, this is the worst thing ever. So, but she's doing better now. She's loving her pain pills and she's on a cottage cheese diet, like all the supermodels. So it's fine. I wanted to do that in college so bad because I was like, I'll lose so much weight if I only eat cottage cheese. But then I like, I'm like, I'm going to put all this other stuff in the cottage cheese and no. I know. I actually did it for like a strong two days. And like the third day I was like, I'm going to throw up if I eat any more cottage cheese. Yeah. You can only add so many things, like so many pineapples and stuff to cottage cheese. A fun one to do is apple butter. If you add apple butter to cottage cheese. Ooh, you I can, have it. Yeah, it's really good. It's probably not good for you, but it's very good. <laughs> That's not what the models were doing. They're <laughs> <laughs> not adding apple butter. <laughs> oh, so last week we talked about the subway incident in 95. And this week I want to focus on the religious group that was a part of it. Well, not just a part of it. They were the reason it happened. Um. Um. So how did Om even start? We're going to focus on the founder first. As we discussed last week is Shoku Akasara, but he was actually born Chuzu Matamuso on March 2nd, 1995. I'm just going to reference him as Ashihara. 1995? 1955. <laughs> I was like, my God, he's like a 10-year-old cult leader. He was born in 1955. <laughs> That's what I get for not putting big bomb in Google Docs. So we're going to reference him as Ashihara. Okay. Just for easiness. He was born with glaucoma, and he suffered from it as a young child. So he was pretty much blind in his left eye, and it was hard for him to see out of parts of his right eye. Uh So in the Japanese culture, he was diagnosed as being blind and disabled. So when he was a little kid... He actually had to go to a school for the blind. He took advantage of this because he was partially able to see. So his teachers said that while he was in school, he would do things like charge kids that were in his class to help them get to things or places because, again, he had the advantage of seeing. So he was pretty much a bully. He was a little entrepreneur. Yeah. Oh, my God. One thing that he did enjoy while he was growing up was martial arts and became really good at jiu-jitsu. Okay. Apparently, that's one of the one martial arts that you can do if you're blind. I did not know that. Um, but yeah, so he started studying the jiu-jitsu, and he actually became really, really good. That's a fun little tidbit. Yeah, he was a black belt, so. Wow. Yeah. Kick my ass. 
Teachers always described him as having high aspirations. He always said that he eventually wanted to be the prime minister of Japan, which that's really, really hard to do. Yeah. Obviously. Isn't it? Is that like the, this shows how ed- uneducated I am. Is that like the royal family? Like, or do you get elected to? You get elected. I would say it's like the equivalent of like the president. Really? Okay. He always wanted more things for his life. However, he graduated high school at 20 years old. And if you're asking yourself if that's late, yeah, it's late, especially for the Japanese culture. He had limited job prospects. And this was because he was disabled, but also because he graduated high school at 20 years old. So he went into acupuncture and massage. Oh, okay. In the 80s, Japan's economy was booming. People were doing really, really well. They were focusing more on, like, what is life? What does this all mean? So a lot of people started to seek out religious institutions. They have all this money already, and they're comfortable, so now they want to figure out what life is about. In 1981, Ashihara joined Agum Shu. This was one of these groups that said that all the followers would have mystical powers and that, of course, the end of the world is coming. So he knew that he was joining a cult. This one wasn't more of a cult. This was just a religious institution. Oh, okay. But, so this was like in the 80s. It was one of the ones that became popular. All right. And it had a lot of like Buddhist, you know, influences and everything. And Ashihara said that he experienced during his journey of this with this group, the awakening of Kundalini. Pretty much what that is, it is that he has reached enlightenment. So he's done with training. And enlightenment in the Buddhist culture is really, really hard to obtain. I mean, I don't know if you ever had to read Siddhartha in school or anything like that. No, I, I'm totally uneducated about it. So I am too. But from what I know, um, it's really, really hard to reach enlightenment. And people would take multiple lifetimes in order to do so. Like, that's what you're always striving for is you want to reach enlightenment. Okay. So it's something that's not easily obtained. So, But does everybody get it eventually? No. Really? Oh, that's sad. It's a struggle throughout your entire life, and then usually you will die, and then you hope you're reborn so you can continue your journey. Oh, wow. Okay. So in 1984, he, of course, has reached enlightenment in his mind. Okay. And he decides that he's going to open up his own institution. So he decides to open up a one-room yoga school. It was called Om Shin Shin No Kai, and he had a handful of people that was following him. He decided that he wanted to change the world. A decade later, this turned into Om, the Supreme Truth, which a decade later had 40,000 followers (gasps) in over six countries and worldwide connections. How did they get to six countries? That's crazy. Oh, we're going to get there. Oh, God. (laughs) So the name was changed for this group in 1987. And in 1989, Japan actually recognized it as a religion. When old members of Om were interviewed... They always described Ashihara as a charismatic, soft, and warm, and compassionate person. In the beginning, the public saw it as an innocent and harmless religion. It was a mix of Buddhism, Hinduism, and Christianity. Oh, that's that's a big potluck right there. Right, yeah. Okay, that's an interesting way to do it. If they kept cleansing large numbers of people, it's going to hold off this apocalypse that's happening at the end of the world. Oh, gotcha, gotcha, okay. He was really into anime and had anime drafted about him. So it was on like Japanese media 
And he had a manga, which is like a comic strip. Mm -hmm. And in 1988, he published a specific one that said that only his followers are going to survive the apocalypse. One of the followers, Akiti Hishiroshu, joined when he was 20 years old. So, and he left before they ever became violent. This is just still in the beginning stages of um. So you can leave? You're allowed to leave. You are allowed to leave. Okay. Yeah. He was taught at the beginning that their beliefs were that he needed to escape material society. And again, if we go back, Japan is booming economically. So mm-hmm. everyone has all these materials and everything. So you need to leave all of that behind and you need to connect to the spiritual. But I work so hard for it. <laughs> but come on. <laughs> so... Again, if you're being really materialistic, you're gathering all of this bad karma. So then you need to do the worship practices in order to cleanse yourself of this bad karma. And if you don't, then you're going to come back as something worse when you're reincarnated and you're going to spend a longer time in hell. So no pressure, but no, yeah, no pressure at all. Like, but you would think that you would just be sent to hell if you were that bad. I don't know, but you're getting reincarnated. Yeah. Okay. A lot of the young people, joined because they just felt something was wrong with their lives because they weren't getting everything that they wanted out of it. Materialistic (laughs) things weren't making them happy. So then that's how they found him. Okay. Other things that helped people think that Ashihara was amazing was people thought he could levitate. There was a photo passed around of him levitating and that went into the media, which if we all know anything about iPhones or taking pictures of anything, I can jump up and take a picture of it and say I'm levitating. Yeah, you are the most levitating person that I know. But here's the picture, and we'll post it online, but just so Vanessa can see. It looks like he's sitting on a bench, but it was edited out. Right. (laughs) What the fuck? Yeah, so after this goes into the media, people are like, oh, he's more like a god now. You know, it gives him, like, all the street cred. Yeah. And he promised everyone that they could reach enlightenment and liberation through following him. Oh, God. So now let's talk about these spiritual practices that you have to do to escape hell. Oh, no. Send me to hell. (laughs) I'd rather be in hell. (laughs) Since the material world is so bad, these are the things you have to do. Cut off links with the outside world, which, again, is like the major cult sign, I think, the red flag. Typical. Yep. Your belongings. And your family and everything need to be cut off. So, again, outside world, everything. Got it. He had this huge belief that everyone had to live together. Again, everyone needs to stay together. He encouraged people to wear the perfect salvation helmet. What is this, you asked? It was some. It was like this helmet that you would wear, and it was hooked to electrical cables. And people were told that it would transmit transmit Ashihara's brainwaves to them. <gasps> Drugs were encouraged, of course, because it's helping you get to a higher state of mind. Wait, so hold on. Are we going to get to this if this helmet like electroshocked them? Like electroshock therapy or something? It wasn't electroshock therapy. It was more of like a, I'm just thinking that I'm connecting with you type deal. Okay, so it's just like, a, okay, got it. It's more of like a placebo effect. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so drugs, of course. Also, you had to push your bodies and your minds to the limit. There was one ritual in particular that followers were buried in a box underground, (gasps) and they wouldn't have oxygen tanks. They were just buried long enough to keep them alive for a whole day. So it was more like a test of faith. And if you failed, you'd die? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, no big deal. You just die. You're you're getting the bad karma out. No big deal. Oh, God. 
one member was tied upside down. And this is actually something that can happen in yoga, but it's something only trained experts do, obviously because the blood is rushing to your head. And the man ended up dying. Ashihara needed to cover this up because his organization is still growing. So it's making him nervous that if one of his members dies during a religious practice. It looks bad. It, it just looks bad. Mm-hmm. In order to cover that up, he said that this guy needed to shed his body through death in order to obtain enlightenment. Because, again, everyone's striving for this enlightenment. The dead guy needs to mm-hmm. do it? So yeah, that's why it? he died. He shed his body uh, so that he could reach his full potential. Man. Someone that was involved in the death, just by helping, you know, hang him up, not on purpose, said that he was going to go to the police and he lost faith in this group. Good for you. He was found strangled. Of course he was. <laughs> of course he was found strangled. So, like we said earlier, it began as a religion and it was just seen as like some weird religion, you know, these groups that isn't really harming anyone, but they're just there. Um, police really weren't allowed to interfere in the religious world. So as these deaths were happening, Om's pretty much left alone, which I think is really important to note. In November 4th, 1989, one of the families that was affected by the, one of the murders hired an attorney called Shakamoko and asked him to investigate. Ashihara sent four men to break into his apartment, kidnap him, his wife, and his 14-year-old son. The lawyer and his wife were poisoned and strangled. 14-month-year-old was strangled as well. Uh. When they found the bodies, and this was years later, they were so mutilated it was hard to identify them. They found it. Where did they find them? They found them buried separately six years later. Oh, my God. Just for doing your job. So now we're skipping forward to the 1990s. The grunge era. The grunge. Ashihara decided that his group is fun and all, but he wants to enter politics. Oh, yeah. Because that's the next step, right? Right. And so during this, he decided that his campaign was going to be focused on the end of the world and how meditation is important and that he had the sole truth. Yeah, because he's the one that's reached enlightenment, right? Right. Gotcha. So obviously this didn't bode well in politics. When he didn't get elected, he saw this as the world rejecting the truth. So now that the world has rejected the truth, he changed his mantra to being that he had to get rid of the unbelievers in order to salvage the world. The non-believers just had to go. Sounds a little Hitler-y, huh? (laughs) Yeah. At this time is when he outlines doomsday prophecy, which includes that third world that we third world war that we were talking about and described the conflict of like a nuclear Armageddon, which I feel like a lot of doomsday groups think is going to happen. His group began to buy land and prepare for the end of the world. So they start going into dooms prepping mode because they think that there's going to be this world war three. They start obtaining chemical and biological weapons. When they were, we talked about the judges that they killed last week. This was one of the situations they were trying to buy land in order to prep for the end of the world. And these judges were probably going to rule against them. So that's why they poisoned them with sarin. So do we know how like they made the sarin or the process of it? Or is that too like, we just know that it's chemistry ish, but we just know that they had labs. Okay. And that they were making sarin and other chemicals as well. Gotcha. And actually while they were making them on more than one occasion, people would die because they'd accidentally poison themselves. Oh, that's their karma right there. Aren't (laughs) you supposed to be like enlightened or something? In 1995, like we said, uh, people were automatically thinking that um, was in this 
subway attack. They, they thought that they were involved just because of all the things that have been happening. Um, the people that carried out that attack, they thought that they were actually doing something right for the world. They thought that they were destroying all the non-believers so then they can go through reincarnation again and be able to have a second chance at everything. They have claimed that the attack was not their doing and they've actually helped pay for victim treatment. I feel like that's just like a, like a topical medicine. Like you get stabbed and they're putting like Neosporin on it. Right. But at least I will say the government's doing a great job just by helping doing searches each month. But I don't understand like why they're still legal. Like, because doesn't the government have power to be like, no, shut it down. You know what I mean? You can't shut down a religious organization. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? How do you do that? Because it's still a religious organization. It's not technically. Yeah. And OM is technically done. But there's still offshoots of people that believe, you know. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that's the story of OM. Fuck OM. I hate them. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That was a good one. I had no idea they existed. Yeah. I had no idea, honestly, about these attacks that even happened. Mm -mm. And uh, my boss at work. He actually told me about it. Which and I was like, told you. I'm not going to say his name, but because uh, I don't know if he wants me to say his name on here. Okay. But we appreciate you and I know you're listening. But um, <laughs> number one fan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he told me about it. And apparently everyone else at work knew about it too. I'm just very, very uncultured. Well, apparently I am too because I had no idea about this. I will say in 95, I was three years old. So. I was four. Uh -huh. <laughs> but yeah, so there we are. Yikes. Ugh, I need a big gulp of something after that. Right. <laughs> All right. So speaking of that, let's get into cocktail hour. There's still offshoots of on throughout the world, and they're still considered dangerous. They are being closely watched by the government, and they're subject to searches every few months. Okay, Vanessa, you did our cocktail this week, so can you uh, describe it for us? Yes, so we are drinking a Texas margarita, and a Texas margarita in it, it has um, an ounce and a half of silver tequila, so we used Jose Cuervo, it has a half ounce of triple sec, we poured margarita mix in there, and then it's supposed to have Grand Marnier at the top, like kind of just a little drizzle, but Grand Marnier is a little bit out of my budget. So <laughs> so we did um, Amaretto, the DiGiorno, not DiGiorno, the... It's not dis, delivery. It, it's not delivery. It's Amaretto. It's called like Disarono or something like that. But Disarono. But it's an orange flavor and we poured that on the top of it. So it's kind of like a Texas margarita, Colts Killers and cocktail style. So it's very good. I like it. So It's very boozy, but good. That's what we need Saturday afternoon. <laughs> All right. So we are drinking Texas margaritas, and you'll see why in a second. So on the morning of June 4th, 1999, the daughter of Josephine Convicka went to check on her elderly mother on her little Texas farm. Although she was 73 years old and a widow who lived alone, she was surrounded by love from all her children and grandchildren. When her daughter first arrived at her mother's house, she wanted to feed the cows and horses and whatever whatever other furry farm creature her mom had. So she gets done with this and then decides to go inside and say hi and catch up. She walks in the house and calls out, Mom, Mom, but doesn't get a reply. She opens the bedroom door to her mother's room and what she would see would mentally scar her for the rest of her life. Her mother was in bed, dead, 
with a copious amount of blood splattered everywhere. Her head was bludgeoned to death. She looked around in a frantic to see a bloody pickaxe laying there on the floor in plain sight. Oh, gosh. Death by a pickaxe. Who would do this? Her mother was loved by so many, she had absolutely zero enemies. It's a little old lady that's living by herself. Her daughter would soon learn that it didn't matter who would have been in the house at the time. The same thing would have happened regardless. See, the exact same crime with the exact same pickaxe was committed on the exact same day, but only about three miles up the road. The other victim's name was Naomi Dominguez, a 26-year-old teacher. She was found dead in her studio apartment. By a pickaxe? By a pickaxe. When police were analyzing the scene of Josephine's house, they noticed that this person had some audacity. The killer decided to have a nice little snack before they skedaddled. They fixed themselves a piece of toast and enjoyed a couple of her plums. When they were done with their snack, they left the way that they came in, which was through a kitchen window. By that kitchen window, there was a deep freezer chest that they used to kind of like give themselves a boost out of the window. Right, to get out. Yeah. Which left a beautiful fingerprint. Yay! The fingerprint matched the one that was at Naomi's flat. Whoever this was, they had killed Naomi first and then traveled to kill Josephine. And we know this because Naomi's white Honda Civic was found about four hours west of Josephine's house. So it was like en route. Right. He was like passing the house. Naomi and Josephine did not know each other. This was a random act of hate. Other officers arrived at the scene, again to Josephine's house, with some canines to track the killer's scent. After the canines led them on about a five-minute jog, their worst fears were confirmed. The German shepherds had led them to a railroad track. See, this was not the first time that they had dealt with this killer. They were actually many, many more times. With the matching scent and the confirmed fingerprint, they knew exactly who they were dealing with. It was the same serial killer who had been terrorizing the country for years. The country? The country. United States, I guess I should say. So let's back up a little bit. This spiel happened in the summer of 1999. Let's go back to Christmas time of 1998. We're still in Texas, but we're in a suburb about 20 minutes of downtown Houston. It's an upper middle class neighborhood called West University Place. So for any Indiana people listening, it's basically like the Carmel of Indiana. Got it. Which hopefully they don't have as many roundabouts up there because <laughs> they're awful. Dr. Claudia Benton is saying goodbye to her family. Nothing morbid or sad. It was just Christmas time and they were leaving to see their family who lived in Arizona. Dr. Benton wanted to come, but she had a huge presentation the following day. She was one of the best doctors in the Houston area. So she said, you guys go ahead. It's no big deal. I'll catch a flight after work tomorrow and we'll all fly back together. So she kisses her husband and her two children goodbye, saying that she'll see them soon. In the morning hours of December 17, 1999, doctors from all over the country had come to her hospital to hear her speak. It's 7.30, then 8, then 8.30, and there's still no Dr. Benton. The doctors that worked with her knew that this is super out of character for her. I mean, she's like the best doctor in Houston. Several of them try to call her, but none of them get an answer. Almost immediately, they called the cops. They knew something was wrong. It was that out of character for her not to show up. 
They asked if they could do a welfare check to make sure everything was okay. It was not okay. As soon as police arrived, they knew that her house had been broken into. Cautiously, the police enter the home. What they find was described as a scene out of a horror movie. Dr. Benton was dead in her bed, again with blood splattered everywhere. As police scour the room, they find a butcher's knife covered in blood nearby. Dr. Benton had multiple stab wounds on her back, 39 to be exact. 39. 39 stab wounds. She had fractures in her skull caused by a two foot tall bronze statue nearby, which I mean, you know, not everybody has bronze statues in their house, but there, there probably was. Yeah. There. Yeah. Fancy. Dr. Benton was also raped. One officer quoted the murder as an overkill. Obviously. Another officer noticed how close her house was to the train tracks, and he actually thought to himself, wouldn't that be the perfect storm? Getting off a train, then potential witnesses not being able to hear anything because of the loud noise. Yeah. And I will tell you, I was actually house shopping back in like July of 2020, and I almost bought a house that was near train tracks. And when we were touring the house, the train went by. And it literally like shook the house and it was very loud. Oh yeah, there's train tracks a few blocks away from here. Yeah, so you know like the loudness of it. I wake up every night. It's like a bad 3 a.m. alarm. But yeah, so it's very loud. Um, Her family was obviously devastated. Her husband ended up going through the house with officers, you know, to point out anything missing and give them clues to catch the killer. There was jewelry missing. There was a stereo missing in her Jeep Cherokee. Where the Jeep would have been parked, there was a plastic piece on the ground. Dr. Benton's keys were still in the house, so it was determined that the killer had hotwired the car to steal it. Why would he even just take the keys? Apparently, he decided to show off his automotive skill or something. I mean, that is a thing, because you would think that he would just, like, look for the keys and, like, go. But... I mean, this is kind of similar to Naomi and Josephine's case, since, you know, Naomi's white Honda Civic was missing. But this plastic piece was determined to have fallen off the Jeep where the perpetrator was doing their hot wire job. On this piece of plastic, the killer left a beautiful fingerprint. So apparently he didn't believe in gloves. (laughs) The police enter the fingerprint into the national database and to their joy and honestly somewhat surprise, they get a match. Only it's a bit of a puzzling match. It's a drifter from Mexico with at least nine different aliases in the system. I'm going to name a few of them just so you get an idea. He went by Jose Reyes Rincendez, Jose Angel Reyes Rincendez, Jose R. Angel, which is Angel um, in the United States, but, or looks like Angel, but you can see how similar these names are so far. Right. His most common alias used was Rafael Resendez Ramirez. He also had several different dates of birth, so he was either 39 or 40 years old, switching ID cards every year. Hmm. After investigation, his real name ends up being Angel Matarino Resendez. So who is Angel Matarino Resendez? He was born on August 1st, 1959 in Mexico. His mom, Virginia Resendez de Matarino, was very physically abusive towards him. 
His dad was not around. At age six, he was sent to live with his uncle, who was also very abusive, except sexually. He would constantly rape him. They also lived near a community pedophile, which I don't know how that's a thing, but the community pedophile would also constantly rape him. This was probably back in the day. What's that website that you can get on now and you can see all the red dots of all the pedophiles near you? Like sexoffenders.org yeah, or something like that. this was like probably that. before they even knew, you know, oh. they were in the area. Yeah. At 11 years old, he ran away, which I don't blame him at all. He lived on the streets for a while and got hooked to glue sniffing, which apparently that's a thing too. At age 16 years old, he tried to come into the United States illegally and was almost immediately deported. This was his first of many attempts. At age 18, he worked for a temp agency in St. Louis, so he was safe and he actually had his green card for a while. But in typical on-hell fashion, he was in and out of jail for his entire adult life for charges of robbery, assault, and drugs. So we're back to current events, aka December 1998. Police found Dr. Benton's stolen Jeep at a railroad station. Surprise. Shocking. Her or his fingerprints were inside the Jeep. Coincidentally, her house was also right next to a railroad station. But at least they knew who this guy was. So they're putting out a nationwide manhunt for Resendez. For example, they put up posters at the border since they know that he's been busted multiple times for entering the United States illegally. Also, Dr. Benton made headlines. The media ate this up. She was a successful female doctor in an upper middle class neighborhood by herself. It terrified the community and actually got them more aware of their surroundings. I mean, wouldn't you be scared of that if we had a serial killer nearby? Like, oh yeah, I'd be moving. Yeah. So some people who never had guns before bought them. Iron bars started going up over windows. Alarm systems were being installed at an alarming rate. <laughs> See what Get I did there? <laughs> Punny. Unfortunately, their manhunt was not good enough because Resinda strikes again. We're in Weimar, Texas now, which is situated right off a railroad. <laughs> It's 90 miles west of West University Place, Texas, which is where Dr. Benton murders occurred. Okay. This is a small town, so small that they only have a few police officers and no homicide team. Although this was a super small town, they had an abundant amount of churches, which I mean, that's typical small town. That's typical, yeah. One of the pastors at the church was named Norman Cermic. He also had a wife named Karen Cermic. And they were both loved by the community. On Sunday morning, much of the town gathered at his church for their weekly service. Everyone was ready to start worship. They were only missing one thing, the pastor. Oh, no. He had not yet arrived, which was, of course, very uncharacteristic of him. One of the members actually decided to take it upon himself and go check on him. His house was so near the church it was literally walking distance, so he's like, okay, I'll go grab the pastor, come back, we'll get this thing done. When he arrived at Pastor Norman's house, he noticed that the front door was unlocked. The man walks into their house and is looking all over for him and eventually ends up in the bedroom, and he screams. There lay Pastor Norman and his wife, Karen, brutally assaulted in their sleep. Again, blood was on the walls, on the floors, everywhere. Next to them lay a bloody sledgehammer, which was determined to be from their own garage. 
Can you imagine buying your own murder weapon? I mean, I'm sure all of these people, yeah, that's just... I mean, I guess you're right. Like, the pickaxe, like, there's just not a random pickaxe laying around. But it's crazy. It's so psychologically, like, messes with you. So, the Texas Rangers had to step on the scene. Since it was such a small town, the cops really had no idea how to approach this. I mean, they've never dealt with something like this before. And from my understanding, I think the Texas Rangers are, like, the state police. Or like That would make sense. Yeah, I think they're, like, a step up from, like, the local town police. They took samples of food from the house, which they thought the killer had ate, and fingerprints from the scene. And wouldn't you know it, it matched Angel Matarino Resendez. So they know it's the same guy based on DNA evidence because they had a semen from the rape. Right. Fingerprints and the same type of crime scene. There's overkill. He's eating their food. He's stealing cars and valuables. But what they don't know is where does this start and where does this end? I mean, fast forward to Josephine's murder in 1999. They know he's responsible for at least five murders by now. But they still can't find him. They can't find him anywhere. They were soon about to find out that these were definitely not his first. They put up a $50,000 reward for any information leading to the arrest of Resendez. They put up his aliases on there, as well as his potential birth dates. They didn't know the confirmed ones, as we do. I just wanted to give a background on it. They also start coordinating efforts between state and federal law, telling everyone to be on the lookout. Finally. Yeah. So now he's getting more publicity And he's starting to get noticed by some cold case detectives. They're basically like, wait a minute. This guy's DNA is a 100% a match. Y'all might want to sip your cocktail for this one because this is a wild ride. Resendez was linked to killing a homeless couple in California in 1986. There's one, or I guess two. He's also linked to killing 86-year-old Leafy Mason in July of 1999. So it's not that cold at the time, but still they had no idea who killed her. Well, that's crazy because he doesn't have a type. He just kills anybody. Exactly. So that's what's so terrifying about him, too. She was beaten to death with an iron. She lived near a railroad. Another unidentified transient male in California was beaten to death with a piece of plywood. And Resendez's DNA was found. He's also linked to killing a university student, Christopher Meyer, walking along some railroad tracks two years prior in August 1997. This happened in Kentucky. So he's traveling everywhere. Finally, he was linked to cold case 19-year-old Jesse Howell in Florida alongside his girlfriend, Wendy Von Von Hubben. Hubben, Hubben. She was raped, strangled, and buried in a shallow grave about 30 minutes away which I found kind of interesting because usually he just leaves his victims. Yeah, why'd he bury her? Exactly. So I don't know if he had, like, sympathy. and Maybe because she was 19. Maybe. So if you've lost count, which is very possible, we are up to 12 murders. Clearly, like we said, he doesn't care who the fuck you are. He will kill you. There is no preference of victims as long as they have a heartbeat. He'll stab or he'll shoot or he'll impale you. However, there is a pattern with his murders. To spell it out, they were by railroads. So the cops aren't stupid. They've caught on to this. So they actually set up Operation Train Stop. (laughs) 
Clever name, right? wonder what they were doing on the operation. I wonder. <laughs> to attempt to catch the newly nicknamed real car killer. That is what he is known as. And it's scary because a lot of people in town were so scared anytime a train went by that some of them actually moved like to different cities with no trains, like in with their siblings or relatives or something like that to get away from them because they knew anybody was at risk. So they also saw another pattern in the chain. So they also saw another pattern in the train killings. They saw that he usually traveled eastbound on trains. And for all the victim cars that he had stolen, he would drive them back out west, possibly to the border of Mexico and El Paso. Okay. So if you don't know geography, which I actually had to look this up to, El Paso is like very, very west of Texas, like almost the western border that you can get to Mexico. So... They checked every single train at train stops. And if he tried to flee while they were scanning the train, they had helicopters out. That's expensive. Exactly. <laughs> Lots of taxpayer dollars. But I mean, they wanted to catch this guy. Right. They were ready to shoot him down if necessary. So they had 24-7 coverage over these areas. But there is one flaw to this, though. They're only eagle-eyeing one track. There are thousands of tracks across the United States. Honestly, he could be anywhere. It was like searching for a needle in a haystack. He was, in fact, somewhere, but nowhere near the Texas Rangers. On June 15, 1999, in Gorham, Illinois, an 80-year-old man named George Mulber and his daughter Carolyn Frederick were found dead inside a mobile home. George was tied to a chair and shot in the back of the head. Carolyn was beaten to death. Guess whose fingerprints was found at the scene? Yep. In case you're bad at geography, Illinois is about a thousand miles or 15 hours away from Texas. So this guy is just everywhere. He does not care. So on top of the disappointing news that two more people had been killed, essentially because of him constantly escaping police's radar, they get news that is really disheartening. They learned that two weeks prior, Resendez was in custody at the border. No way. This was during one of his many entries and exits to the United States. The Rangers slash FBI, because they're obviously on the case by now, were not notified by this. And guess what? Border Patrol let him go. You would think they would have like the FBI's most wanted list. You would think. But, I mean, you got to remember that this was 1999. That's true. So technology was not as good as it is today. Back then, immigration computers were not linked to the FBI. But, yeah, you would think that they would at least have, like, a poster or they would look or pay attention. Right. So now law enforcement is pissed. They basically say, fuck this guy. You mess with the bull, you're going to get the horns. Texas, you know. So... They upped the reward to $125,000 to any information leading to Resendez's arrest. He is now on America's top 10 most wanted list. And it's crazy because I saw the poster and he was on it the same time as Osama bin Laden. Wow. Mm -hmm. I think Osama bin Laden was like number two and he was like number seven. It was crazy. But they shut down all railways. They shut down all railways where he could possibly be on the way from Illinois to Texas. They have tips coming in from all over the country. Although they follow through with many of them, 
analysts agreed on which one should be priority. Right. One tip they had followed up on made them discover his birth certificate, which is where they actually found his name and date of birth. Again, we already know this. But by finding this out, this was huge. They can trace his current residence, which is a town called Rodeo, Mexico. And it's spelled like rodeo, but... So the FBI decides to take a little road trip. They show his wanted poster to local residents of the town, and they immediately recognize him, and they point out to his house. When they arrive at his house, it is very clear that he is living a double life. Why? Because a woman answers the door. She immediately recognized the man on the reward poster, too. It was her husband and father to her child. Her name was Julieta Dominguez. She was clueless and asked what they wanted to know. Agents asked when the last time she saw her husband was. She said it was a couple weeks ago as he often traveled to the United States, but again demanded to know why they were asking her this. When agents told her, she denies it all and says he isn't violent. Of course he isn't. No, 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 not at all. They basically spill it out to her. They say, listen, whether you want to believe us or not is your choice, but we need to talk to your husband. How can we get a hold of him? She then tells agents that he has a half-sister living in the United States. So they're like, great, another road trip. They end up searching Julieta's house, though, to look for any evidence to relay Resendez to the crime more. What I'm about to say is a little gut-wrenching. Julieta was actually wearing Dr. Benton's necklace. I knew it was going to be something like that. Mm, It's like a punch in the stomach when you hear that. And her jewelry box was full of other trinkets stolen from Resendez's victims. When they asked where she got these from, she said that her husband gave them to her as gifts. Meanwhile, as agents in Mexico are searching her house, one of the Texas Rangers, Sergeant Drew Carter, finds Resendez's half-sister and goes to talk to her. She, of course, says, I haven't heard from my brother in weeks. Sergeant Carter doesn't buy it. His tactic is to scare her shitless. He basically says, look, your brother is wanted for 11 murders. I don't think that you understand how serious this is. If you say you haven't heard from him, and that's the truth, then so be it. But we can't be responsible if one of the family members of the deceased gets to him and kills him themselves before we have a chance to bring him safely into a jail cell. Smart. It's a smart way to do it. So he leaves, and a couple of days later, she calls him back and is like, okay, JK, I've talked to him. You don't like that, Charlie? No, I don't like it either. And Carter is basically like, okay, go on. And she says, well, I told him what you said, and he's wanting to talk about a possible surrender. So his tactic worked. He knew that if he ever showed his face again, he was basically screwed, whether he was being caught by police or dying in a shoot-off. This surrender conversation went on for weeks, like kind of like in a negotiation. Resendez wouldn't directly call his half-sister. He'd call different family members who would then call her and then would tell Carter the deal so he couldn't be tracked. Right. Finally, they agreed to a peaceful meet at the border of Mexico in the United States. Only Resendez stated that he would not surrender to anybody else except Carter. Really? Yeah, since they kind of like built a bond over this negotiation. So honestly, no one expects him to show up for turning himself in. I mean, he's gotten away 
and been on the run for so long, why would he just give himself up? But on the morning of July 13, 1999, at 9 a.m., agents saw two figures walking towards the border. One was, one was Resendez's brother, and the other one was him. Wow. It was actually him. Yeah. Resendez walks up to Carter and shakes his hand. Almost immediately after, Carter puts him in handcuffs. The rail car killer has been apprehended. And a fun little tidbit, Sergeant Carter was actually a rookie at the time. Oh, good for him. So he was named Officer of the Year after this whole ordeal, which is well-deserved. So the community is thrilled by this. Their nightmare was finally over, and they could take a breath of fresh air. Another fun little tidbit, at the time of his arrest, Resendez was 5'6 and weighed 190 pounds. Wow. So he's not a huge guy, which, in my opinion, is a little crazy that he was able to take all these people out. Well, and the wife and husband, like, partners, you know, that he killed at the same time. Yeah, there's two of them. You would think that one of them would, like, hold him back, but he must have been scrappy. So at questioning, the FBI lays out all the evidence, and it's basically like, look, man, we got you. And he doesn't even try denying it. He actually admits to another cold, unsolved case that happened back in 1991. It was a Michael White who was shot in his front yard, but police had no leads to go on because it was just so random. So the FBI is like, okay, WTF, why are you just now admitting this? He claimed he was half angel, half man. Oh my gosh, not another one of these. Quote, I don't believe in death. I know the body is going to waste, but me as a person, I'm eternal. I'm going to be alive forever. Of course, with him saying that, they had a defense of the insanity plea. Yep. But nonetheless, the prosecution decides to do this the smart way. They only charge him for Dr. Benton's murder. And the reason that they did that is because the case would be held in Harris County, Texas. This county has put more people to death than any other county in the country. So the prosecution uses the DNA evidence, the fingerprints, basically all forensics pointing at him. They also bring in a witness, Resendez's only surviving victim named Holly Dunn. So a brief murder that I told you about earlier was of a man named Christopher Meyer, who Resendez killed while he was walking along railroad tracks. I didn't mention that he was walking with his girlfriend, Holly Dunn. Holly says that Resendez approached them and robbed them both. He bound her boyfriend's hands, feet, and gagged him. He then picked up a large rock and crushed his skull. Next, Resendez attacked Holly. She said that he raped her and then hit her too with a large rock. Miraculously, she survived, but she suffered from multiple face fractures and obviously PTSD from the rape. Again, the defense tries to bring in the insanity plea, saying Resendez was a paranoid schizophrenic with religious delusions. Right. The jury didn't buy it. On May 22, 2000, after a few hours of deliberation, they found Resendez guilty of Claudia Benton's murder, and he was sentenced to death by lethal injection. He showed no emotion when he heard his sentence, which I'm not surprised by that at all. Over the years, Resendez's legal team tried multiple times to appeal his case. And you know, this is the norm. But what I find incredibly disgusting is that part of the public was saying that he shouldn't be put to death either. 
I watched a video over this and the main protesters were women saying that he was insane and he shouldn't die. Really? Which is baffling to me. Although he killed men too, over half of his victims were women. So in my perspective, what if it was your sister or daughter, best friend, even yourself, would you still be protesting for him not to be put to death? Right. Like that's insane to me. But nevertheless, their efforts failed, thank God. The judge said that Resendez was fully aware of what he was doing. It was also noted that he was soaking in the attention from the media. And at one point, he was selling his autograph for a minimum of $50. His, I, oh, they shouldn't be allowed to sell their autographs. They shouldn't be allowed anything. But who would want his autograph? Not me. No, that's gross. Fun tidbit, Resendez declined a final meal. As he walked into the execution room, family members of deceased loved ones watched him. His final words were, I want to ask you if it's in your heart to forgive me. You don't have to. I know I allowed the devil to deceive me. I thank God for having patience with me. I don't deserve to cause you pain. You didn't deserve this. I deserve what I'm getting. Wow. So at least he was kind of rational there. Before his final breath, he prayed in Hebrew and Spanish. The drug was administered at 7.58 p.m. on June 27, 2006, six years after his original sentence. He was declared dead at 8.05 p.m. After the execution, Dr. Benton's husband spoke to the press. Angel Mazzarino Resendez looked like a man and walked like a man, but what lived within that skin was not a human being. My wife was compassionate. If he would have just knocked on the front door, she would have given him food or money or whatever he needed to get by. That's so sad. That breaks my heart. Whatever he was, he will rot in hell as he should for the rest of eternity. And that is the story of Angel Maturino Resendez. That's a good one. I've never heard of that ever. This is probably my favorite case that I covered. Yeah, I can't believe. I mean, obviously it was such a big case. I can't believe it's not more widely known. I know. Like when I saw the poster of him being on America's Most Wanted and Osama Bin Laden was up there. I was like, how have I never heard of this? Yeah, it's not widely covered. I loved it. That yeah. was awesome. Yeah, this was my favorite. Fave, but not my fave because he killed a lot of people. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks guys for listening again and follow us on Instagram. Our handle is Colts, Killers, and Cocktails. Thanks for the support so far. We've almost got a thousand followers. If we can get up there, that'd be awesome. Recommend us to your friends, your colleagues, your doctor. Your X's, your O's, anybody, all of them, your coworker, even the weird one you don't want to talk to at work. Yeah, maybe they'll get along. I don't, I don't know. Maybe you guys can bond over this. Yeah, so try it. Try See it. See what happens. Do it. <laughs> See Thanks. Bye. Bye.